Hi everyone, Brandon here with a quick word before the podcast. Glass Tire is a nonprofit publication that exists thanks to the support of readers and listeners like you. We know times are tough right now, but if you're able, we could really use your help. By visiting glasstire.com donate, you can make a one-time gift or become a monthly sustaining donor to our publication. All of the money we get goes right back into our coverage of Texas and its artists. One more time, that's glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks for listening, and here's today's podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Art Dirt. This is a podcast where we at Glass Tire uh, bi-weekly talk about topical art topics. My name is Brandon Zeck. I'm Christina Reese. And this week we are talking about something that is hyper-relevant. Um, back on July 20th of 2020, Artnet News broke news about how the New York-based dealer Gavin Brown is closing his very large gallery uh, in New York City in Harlem, and he's joining Gladstone Gallery, run by Barbara Gladstone. I understand it's possible if you're listening to this, you may not be like super in tune with the New York scene of galleries, and that's totally cool. We're going to kind of break down why this story really was a big deal and why it shook the art world as a whole And we're also going to talk about how it's kind of related to Texas, but it's also related to just kind of the future of galleries. So as such, this podcast is called Gavin Brown, Barbara Gladstone, and the Future of Galleries. All right. So one of the things that made this so newsworthy is that while, say, in March and April, as the lockdowns were happening, uh, especially in New York City and Los Angeles, and then kind of rippling out across the rest of the country, and certainly happening in Europe as well, there was plenty of speculation about this giant recession that's going to be upon us and stay with us, and that galleries and institutions, uh, nonprofits, all of them are going to be in trouble. What you know, what I think surprised people is that a, ga- a gallery the size of Gavin Brown, with the size and sort of uh, glamour and fame and money of Gavin Brown Enterprise uh, would be in a position to sort of be forced to consolidate or to join forces with another gallery. There were, you know, there was talk of the biggest galleries, the big, big mega galleries, blue chip galleries like Hauser and Worth, possibly swallowing up smaller galleries or taking a controlling interest in smaller galleries mm-hmm. in order to keep them alive so that the ecosystem can continue to thrive, the ecosystem as it as it is. But it was weird to have Gavin Brown be, you know, and, and of course, this is news that's announced. We don't know what is happening to all of the other galleries right now across the world and in New York City and what kind of shape they're in. We can only guess, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, the ramifications of having a, a, a what is essentially a blue chip gallery or a near blue chip gallery like Gavin Brown be uh, find some sort of precarity in the situation that forces a consolidation with a bigger gallery. And Barbara 
Gladstone isn't really one of the mega mega galleries compared to Hauser and Wirth or Gagosian or Zwerner, but it is an older, bigger, more established, you know, enterprise. And it's worth a little bit also, I think, Christina, just talking about and breaking down the the kind of almost farm system. Like it can be compared to major and minor league baseball, mm-hmm. how how gallery systems work kind of at the higher level. So, you know, you have galleries that people run out of like cheap spaces or out of their apartments that are kind of like the the single a teams of baseball you have galleries which are kind of like the they're the mid-tier galleries and a lot of times artists go from mid-tier galleries to larger galleries or like blue chip galleries like they'll go from they'll they'll, the mid-tier galleries kind of build their careers they take them to art fairs they get their prices up and what happens eventually, unfortunately, is mid-tier galleries kind of get priced out almost of this artist's work that they've worked with for such a long time and that they have invested so much money in. So then naturally the artist wants to go to a gallery that they can receive even more support from and that will have a collector base that can pay even more money for their work so then they move on. And these mid-tier galleries kind of languish in being in the middle because just that's inherently what they are. They're like a feeder team to the major leagues. Uh, places like, like you mentioned, Hauser and Wirth, Gagosian, David Swerner. But at the same time, galleries like Gavin Brown's Enterprise occupy this very, it's this very odd middle space where they're not quite mid-tier galleries and they're not quite blue chip galleries. Uh, you know, like one of the qualities of blue chip galleries is they have outposts, you know, maybe multiple in New York and in London and in Hong Kong and in Cape Town. And they they just kind of have this international worldwide roster of locations, Paris, London, etc. Yeah, they franchise out. Yeah, they franchise out. But the thing about the thing about the system that you're describing is up until this point, this this relationship between mid-tier galleries and the biggest kind of mega galleries has never been formalized. So unlike farm teams, it's not as though the Texas Rangers, you know, their feeder teams really are, the players are really expected to, you know, head into the Rangers. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's possible that this kind, this system will become more formalized. So a mega gallery can can start to uh, develop, and Zorner's doing it um, with a program, you know, that he's got going now. It's called Viewing Rooms, and he's he's mm-hmm. kind of formalizing these, or that gallery is sort of formalizing these um, these relationships with galleries in all these different cities. Instead of opening a Zorner in every city, he's just finding the strongest. Uh, mid-tier galleries with the best rosters in every city and then formalizing this kind of arrangement to where their artists can show up essentially through the Zwerner website. I don't know what um, what sort of cut he's getting um, or what kind of protection he's offering, mm-hmm. but uh, we, we do expect to see a lot more of this. And instead of galleries... Well, I do think that that blue chip and mid tier, you know, and of course we're we're calling you know Gavin Brown not a blue chip gallery. Relative to the art world, he is blue chip. I mean, if yes. you look at his roster of artists, it's stellar, and those those artist prices are not low. They are very very expensive artists. Well, and on that, I, I feel like a a point that we need to make while we talk about this also is that I, I've looked at Gavin Brown's website every now and then because his his shows were actually, however blue chip he was, his shows were. Or at least tried to maintain some semblance of punk 
around them. Yeah, he's a he's a very rock and roll dealer. There's no doubt. Yeah, but the artists who were on his list, I mean, ten of his artists are migrating from his gallery with him to Gladstone, which is probably a a really beneficial thing for Gladstone out of this deal. But there are artists who have. I mean, very big names who are very prominent, some of whom are historic, that I'm surprised they don't actually deal with the, like, top-tier galleries that we've been talking about. I mean, artists like Joan Jonas, the pioneering performance and video artist, um, people like Ed Atkins, Arthur Jaffa, who's received a lot of attention recently, uh, Latoya Ruby Frazier, the photographer, um, Alex Katz, the painter who is you know, in his 90s and at this point, and is probably one of the more famous painters in the art world. Like, he was showing with Gavin Brown, and I, I was surprised in some instances every time that I checked his website to be reminded of the tier of artists that he had involved with his gallery. And one of the things that allowed this to happen is that the biggest artists with the biggest names have, you know, increasingly over the last 20 years, for sure, I've watched this and you've watched this, is that they're not represented by just one or two galleries anymore. They're represented by six galleries uh, internationally. And so, you know, if an artist has been treated really well by somebody like Gavin Brown and they want to stay with Gavin Brown, they can do it because they've got five other galleries uh, selling their work to five other whole client bases uh, internationally, and they can be loyal to Gavin Brown and he can understand their work and allow them to do experimental stuff in his space and to be quite rock and roll about it, and it might seem worth it to them. They're not necessarily going to suddenly start making, you know, bank that they never made before just because they hop to Hauser and Worth if they already have a pretty strong, you know, lineup of galleries representing them. But, you know, as of this writing, we we know that about 10 of his artists are going to migrate over with him to Gladstone. There are some big-name artists that he has represented, and their names have not come up yet. That doesn't mean that they won't migrate as well. It's just that the reporting that was done around the 20th or the week of the 20th just mentions 10 names. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things about this that I think, you know, we're all going to be speculating for a long time. We are almost certain that we are in for a really long, dirty, deep recession or depression. We're wondering what's happening when the dust settles. One of the, I think the better pieces that came in, the earlier pieces that came out about this on Artnet by Tim Schneider a question that he asks is, you know, if this is happening to Gavin Brown and you think about all of the galleries in Chelsea and Tribeca and the Lower East Side and everywhere else in New York that have not been able to make rent and have not necessarily had rent staved off, it's just building up. They're all going to be up for rent in August. And how many of them are going to survive? And he terms these galleries ghost galleries. It's like they are essentially probably already dead. We just don't know it because their storefront still exists. And the implications of that are kind of quite devastating. I mean, I've been kind of, again, I, you know, we've said this before in these podcasts, I'm feeling very cowed by the idea of making predictions about what's going to happen to the art world, but it's hard not to believe that about 30% or more of galleries, and I'm talking all galleries, all nonprofits, all artist run spaces about 30% of them will probably be gone by this time next year. They'll either be gone or they'll be some sort of shell of their former selves. And I don't just mean like ghost galleries uh, as like what this article is talking about, but things like, I mean, they'll, they'll turn 
itinerant, which is something that, Christina, that you've written about that uh, a gallery in Houston mm-hmm. did a number of years ago. Uh, but, you know, I, I always feel like whenever galleries turn to that model, they're there's there's something about having a physical space that is lost once you don't have a physical space. I mean, people know what you're doing if they can visit your physical space. Of course, this is this is feelings pre-coronavirus, right? So all of that could change. Mm-hmm. Maybe websites have become the physical spaces now. But there there used to kind of be this this personal engagement element with galleries where if if you are, are itinerant and are only installing your show for four weeks, then you probably don't have your storage in that location. If someone comes in, they can't talk about a show that was a year ago that they really remembered and liked a piece from and then buy that off mm-hmm. you right then and there. Um, maybe the alternative to that would be something like, I don't know, I could see galleries doing a sort of like participating in WeWork type spaces. And I don't know, you meet a collector and you bring the piece in or you just bring the piece to the collector's house, which is what other galleries have done in the past and and still continue to do. But there's there's something that's missing and there's something that these galleries would severely lack even if they survive without their spaces. Yeah, and two two things about that. That's a very good point because we understand the experience of going in and and building relationships with uh, good art dealers who have a really good eye and how exciting that is and how rewarding it is. It's a really good back and forth. And through all this pandemic, when everyone has been shut in, one of the things that people have really realized they long for the most is that sense of connection, you know, that sense of uh, a a way of being able to identify experience as being something that feeds your soul. Going into a gallery where you have a relationship with the dealer, where you have a relationship with the artists who uh, are showing there is incredibly satisfying. If that's taken away because the brick and mortar locations are taken away, that's going to, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for people to make the same kind of personal connections with with art, with artists, with dealers, uh, etc. If they don't have a, a steady place to do it, like you're talking about. The second thing about that is that galleries can now kind of do this weird prevarication when they mention that they're closing or that they're changing their model. What does that news look like? Like, are they even going to make formal announcements? Like, we're closing, but we're going to, and here's the word, pivot to another model. You know, it was one thing like three, four, five years ago, even six years ago, when it was becoming novel for galleries to say, fuck this, we're not paying for rent in a brick and mortar location anymore. It's too expensive. We're going to do this itinerant thing and we're going to try it. And it seems kind of exciting. And and they're able to bring really good artists work to different places, different cities, different kinds of unusual locations. And that's kind of fun, but it's more fun when it's in comparison with the regular sort of experience of going out and seeing and buying art. It's just another thing to add to kind of the mix. What if that's all there is? And, you know, there's a, there's a sense and I don't want to say that art fairs are the best um, authorities on how an art world should be run. But of course, art fairs for years have refused to allow galleries in that don't have a physical location. Mm -hmm. They have to, so galleries have to be paying rent or own their building in order to even enter an art fair. And for so many galleries that we know and love, you know, easily 50% of their income every year comes from their participation in art fairs. To ground kind of this whole conversation, um, Art Basel has a thing called the UBS market report that tracks how galleries are doing according to you know the data that they gather right so in that report 
they say that about 50% of galleries' annual revenue is from art fairs, which is staggering, considering that so many art fairs have been canceled this year, even if they have gone online. But um, to kind of farther go through it, the Art Dealers Association of America, the ADAA, has been collecting data from galleries, and they recently released a report uh, from 168 galleries, but they also collected info from the Gallery Association of Los Angeles, uh, the New Art Dealers Alliance, NADA, uh, the Houston Art Gallery Association, and some others. But they released a report that said that uh, galleries had a 31% loss uh, in the first quarter of 2020, and they're expecting a 73% loss in gross revenue for the second quarter, which just ended. Um, And I mean, those numbers to any business are startling, but to a gallery that already operates on razor thin margins, because many of them are like small businesses or or they're self-owned businesses, even the ones that are larger, um, that's that's frightening. And in his article, uh, Christina, that you mentioned earlier on Art News, Tim Schneider notes that that data can be kind of countered with the fact that galleries have done layoffs. Also, though, that galleries, the main expenses are rent, shipping artwork, installing shows, contractors that are used for all of those purposes, and that galleries, like a ton of other businesses, like a ton of other art businesses right now, um, nonprofits, museums, they're not paying the money to put up shows and to ship work. And, you know, some of some of them aren't paying rent. Uh, another study said that about 80% of galleries don't own their spaces, about 80% rent. That's also from the ADAA. But all of these major expenses can kind of be forgone in this past time. But still, I, I, I don't see them kind of equaling out as easily in the future, especially if galleries try to do pop-ups, because doing pop-ups is a whole host of other concerns and problems of people not knowing where you are, of trying to deal with a bunch of different spaces, of trying to organize a show in a space that you don't know well. Like, it takes a long time to become familiar with a location or an interior space well enough to be able to easily install a show that make it look good. Like, Christina, I know you had that experience uh, working at TCU and also in your own gallery. Like, it's hard to do something and then to get people to come is already a whole other deal, and now I think it's going to be even more difficult. Well, it's going to be more difficult because there's going to be so much more competition because so many galleries are going to have to um, start trying out these things that they haven't done before. I will argue that for most of these galleries that have been doing art fairs for a while, they've gotten probably pretty good at going into unfamiliar spaces and getting a feel for it quickly and hanging a show. You just get good at at these kind of, you mm-hmm. know, pop up or like, I don't know this space, but I got to get this show up and I got to sell it. And then you capitalize on the hype and the novelty of being in a different place or being at an art fair. You know, I think one thing that we need to look out for or that we need to be aware of is that galleries in Texas and in New York, and I want to clarify something from earlier in the conversation. The reason galleries in New York have not been paying rent is because Cuomo uh, put a kind of a rent um, delay on commercial businesses and maybe even residents um, that they don't have to pay rent until August 20th. The thing is that the landlords have not forgiven the rent. They're not saying you don't owe us for June and July. 
they're saying you don't have to pay it until mid to late August. Yeah, it's like a delay of eviction notices. So that means that people can still occupy their current spaces, although after August 20th, it's kind of, it might be a no holds barred, like galleries getting kicked out left and right if they haven't been paying. Yeah, and and maybe we should have held off on even recording this until after that, or maybe we'll do another podcast uh, after August 20th when about a third of the galleries in New York City have suddenly... Um, vacated their spaces. I I hope that's not what happens. What I do think, and even having talked to some gallerists here in Texas, is that when the pandemic started, you know, a whole lot of people, most people who had any means whatsoever, any money whatsoever, did start, if whatever they, it is they care about, they looked for ways to help. And so a whole lot of galleries, in other words, that have really loyal clients, Mm -hmm got something out of it you know their clients came around and said what can we do to help what can we buy what can we do to help you stay afloat during this hard time but that initial rush of kind of white knight saving of a gallery your favorite gallery or the enthusiasm of helping somebody who's going to face hard times that doesn't go on forever and ever you know the galleries that might have uh been able to survive through the summer because of the goodwill of clients who decided to come in and throw some money at them. Again, I, you know, I just don't know how sustainable that is. Rich people who buy art, they're like everyone else in terms of psychology. You know, people don't necessarily enthusiastically spend money on things or sectors that, um, they're not directly in their lives or that don't weigh on them consistently. And if art has kind of gone online, there just may not be all that much enthusiasm for kind of mid-tier collectors to be collecting a lot of art right now. Also, you know, they're watching their 401ks and everything else just kind of, you know, dry up. Yeah. Well, and that whole element of, you know, people coming in and trying to help sectors that they care about, like, that's mirrored more or less across everything. And also with, you know, the relief that's been coming from the government. But at the same time, everyone is experiencing that same dry up just because if it doesn't go back to normal, it can't happen consistently. So that's arts organizations, that's restaurants that I know, like I I know a ton of restaurants that have received a lot of business when they first started doing the curbside and things like that. But as people, you know, get more and more familiar with restaurant limited menus and don't want to go out of their house and, it is, stuff just dries up and that's that's just kind of the the cycle of it and the art business is no different even though people love what comes out of it i did want to, us to take a second and talk about some of the other stories that have been coming out of kind of the larger uh gallery system um like in the last uh, couple weeks we've also seen layoffs from david zorner and from pace gallery which are top tier galleries which are blue chip galleries yeah um mega galleries the mega galleries yeah yeah so david zorner uh is projecting a 30 percent sales drop and laid off 40 employees i could almost see that number not being large enough i i could see them being conservative about that but you know he has outposts in new york paris hong kong london but a lot of those layoffs were in the U.S. I could kind of see that happening. I don't know if it's for labor concerns or if just because things are worse in the U.S. right now. So they have a they might have a delayed reopening or their business in the U.S. might be taking more of a hit than in other places. Uh, I know some galleries in London have reopened at this point. But uh, what do you think about this kind of even affecting like the very like cream of the crop top tier i can't say i'm surprised in one way because you know in a sense these blue chip galleries 
they're not small businesses. They're not artist run. They are corporations in the way that they operate, you know, with hundreds of employees worldwide. Also, I think one of the reasons that we actually hear a lot from them is because who they are and what they do and their position, people care a lot about them. So, you know, if if a small gallery like 47 Canal lays off two employees, like we're not going to really hear about it as opposed to David Zwerner who lays off 40 employees. And 40 is really probably not that high compared to his entire workforce. It says it's about 20% of his workforce. So significant, not significant. Yeah, so that, that gives you an idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the mega galleries, you know, at this point and for a long time have been operating a lot more kind of like museums, really. I mean, they're, they have a very bloated kind of, I would say bloated administration, but they're showing so much stuff and they work on such incredibly ambitious shows. If they're not showing work, then it's, it's no surprise that, you know, to take care of the bottom line that David Zwerner's going to lay off some people who are most directly associated with mounting shows because mm-hmm. the shows aren't going up. I don't know how permanent that is. I have a feeling that the mega galleries are going to bounce back just fine. I think that, you know, the, um, the disappearing middle class and wealth disparity uh, will continue unabated and the richest people will continue to shop at David's Werner and Gagosian and Hauser and Wirth. I think that the danger again is that we're not even going to necessarily know which galleries are closed until maybe long after they have closed. Mm-hmm. We'll be walking around scratching our heads and wondering who is even open or maybe that they've got like a couple of months worth like this they're kind of they're kind of living on their on fumes. And they'll have another couple of shows, but what they're not telling us and what we have no idea of knowing is that they, they're going to have to close in the new year or what have you. Um, I don't, I'm not surprised that the big galleries, I mean, the big, one of the reasons the big galleries are so rich is because they, they know how to deal with money. Mm-hmm. And if it's practical for Zwerner to lay off some people for now, then of course that's what he's going to do. He's not going to be reckless or weird about money. He's going to, he's going to protect his bottom line. Something that kind of su- supports this is one of the recent Art Market Art Basel reports touches on the increase or decrease in sales of a gallery depending on how much art, uh, in, in a dollar amount, how much art the gallery sold. So the most significant increase in profit or in sales was to galleries that sold between 10 and $50 million of art. It was a much more significant increase in income than, you know, galleries that sold $500,000. Basically it's saying that larger galleries did better and increased their sales and their income more, which again, makes sense with the business model and with all that they have going for them and with how they treat staff and money well yeah and it's just and it's how money is flowing in the world now period you know things are going up if you don't grow you go away and these galleries have figured out a way to grow and then they they become a self-perpetuating sort of monster um the more money you have the more money you make that's how things have been going in the world in the western world for years now this is unchecked capitalism it's just how it works it is leaving the middle class in the dust and it's leaving mid-tier galleries in the dust is this a necessarily a bad thing in the long run in terms of how it affects the art world? Uh, you know, yes and no. I mean, essentially, if Zwerner and Gagosian and those galleries operate 
almost more like museums than like galleries. They just happen to also sell their work. Then we'll continue to get these absolutely stellar shows out of them, you know, and we'll get to go see really beautiful shows at Hauser and Worth with all of this scholarship behind it, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. But if the, if the mid tier galleries disappear, um, you know, as an ecosystem, it is a giant pyramid. And as things, you know, dry up in the middle, it dries up things beneath. And if the bottom tier of the entire ecosystem, which is artists, don't have a way to make a living, whether they're teaching in art schools or working in the art economy one way or the other, we're in trouble. And we're in the same kind of trouble with the disappearing middle class. It's just not a healthy uh, economy to not have it. It's not going to be healthy in the art world either. Um, so it looks to me like what could happen in the next couple of years is we'll continue to have our mega galleries and they'll continue to do what they do extremely well. And then we will have very few mid-tier galleries that can survive. And then we'll have a whole lot of new, scrappy, startup, nonprofits, artist-run collectives, artist-run mm-hmm. spaces out of their own houses, out of their own apartments. You know, we'll we'll see a kind of new um, grassroots regional scene happening in every single different market, every single different larger city. And there will be two different art worlds. Um, there will be the one that is all about the market and the one that's not much about the market at all. Well, and to, to kind of wrap up this conversation with, you know, this is uh, most of what we've been talking about is national uh, or is New York, L.A. kind of larger art centers based where pieces are regularly sold for millions plus. Uh, But Mm -hmm. how this affects Texas, we don't really have as many of like the farm team system in Texas galleries. Like, yes, artists move around from gallery to gallery sometime. But at the same time, there are artists who have been with solid, solid mid-tier galleries for years and who have been able to grow kind of with the gallery. I feel like in Texas, we see more of a growth of the gallery itself than of a hopping around from artists from one gallery to another to grow. Mm -hmm. But we, uh, Christina, you and I have been talking to gallerists, so we know kind of this mirror some of the case, but we would be ignorant to not think that these statistics that are being reported by the ADAA uh, that we're seeing as a trend happening to larger galleries or mid-tier galleries, we'd be ignorant to think that they weren't also happening to our local scene. Maybe to a different extent or to a lesser extent, you know, rents aren't as bad in Texas as they are in Chelsea or in New York, but um, still the principles of engagement and the principles of being able to continue this business model like the business model is the same the only difference is these galleries in houston and in dallas and in austin and in san antonio don't have their own publication wing and they don't have their own art consultancy wing but they still run off the same Mm -hmm. core business model so all of the inherent issues that we've talked about in this podcast are still super prevalent Oh, gosh. And I mean, if we're facing the kind of recession we may be in for, the collectors who collect, even at the what we kind of consider the top level in Texas, now, if it's like people in the energy sector or what have you, they may, and there may be corporate uh, collections that are going to continue to collect, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But a whole lot of buyers, a whole lot of collectors are going to slow down on their collecting because we are in very uncertain times. We're in the middle of an election year, and this is going to be an incredibly messy election year. People really put the brakes on their spending when things are this uncertain 
unstable and this insecure. And that's true in Texas too. And I can vouch for it because I lived through it in 2008. I had a gallery in Dallas that really, really felt the effects of the recession before it even happened. We all did in Dallas. Um, we were starting to really understand what was coming by spring of 2008 before the thing that really, really happened in October that shocked everyone. But I would say that this is even worse than the 2008 recession. Mm -hmm. This is, and people are likening it more to a kind of giant disaster, like a kind of a 9-11 where it actually cataclysmically changes the model of how to show and sell and be around uh, a particular in industry. In this case, it's, you know, for our purposes, it's it's art. Mm -hmm. um, we don't we don't know what things are going to look like. I think it's going to be far worse than what happened after 2008. And I think about a quarter to a third of galleries in Dallas, at least a quarter of kind of the newest, youngest galleries in Dallas, really struggled or even shut after 2008. I would I would I think that number is going to be higher. I think that percentage is going to be higher because I think that um, kind of middle class mid tier collectors are going to slow down their spending. I think they probably already have whatever money they threw at galleries in the first months of the pandemic. That's not going to last forever. Not if they're not, you know, multimillionaires rolling around in a lot of money that they can just keep throwing at, you know, their favorite pet galleries or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm worried. I, I mean, I, I am a worrier by nature. Um, <laughs> and I've been through some of this and I've been through some of the trauma of it. And I think a lot of galleries that did survive 2008 and kind of rebuilt their business model after 2009 may have co-opted or adopted some strategies for dealing with this kind of major hit, but I'm not sure anyone was really prepared for a hit this major. No, no one, no one was prepared for a complete and utter stop in what they were used to. No one could be prepared for that, really. Yeah, and just like the cancellation of all the art fairs. I mean, the, the entire ecosystem has been so incredibly shaken up that, um, you know, you know, like the Dallas Art Fair is supposed to happen in October still. Yeah, I was talking to a gallerist about that recently, and just we haven't heard what could happen with that. I mean, you know, they've already pushed back once and they started Culture Place, which is like an online way to connect Texas galleries to collectors, which is a whole a whole other thing I could see in the future. Even in the immediate future, more websites like Culture Place are like, you know, kind of more localized versions of Artsy popping up to kind of help mitigate this but oh the, but, but the fatigue of having to deal with art online only yeah. especially physical objects that we're supposed to be interacting with in person i'm not talking about web-based art i'm talking about <laughs> object-based art yeah um you know it's really it really has been it, it is starting to get pretty deadening, pretty flattening of, uh, of this particular art fan. Um, I'm having a hard time with it and I'm, you know, we're all ready to get out and see a lot more stuff, but I just feel like, you know, in the end, the next set of questions are who's willing to go to an art fair anyway. I, I know for a fact, there are a couple of prominent Texas collectors who are over the age of 60, who have said out loud, um, I'm not going to art fairs anymore. I'm just not doing it. It's not worth it. You know, there's a kind of trauma involved with all of this. There are going to be a lot of people who uh, alter their behavior going forward 
probably quite permanently. If prominent collectors in the state of Texas have already decided that they're not going to do art fairs anymore, what does that mean about art fairs? Who's going to show up to the Dallas Art Fair? Maybe a lot of people will. Maybe it won't happen. We don't know, but that's that's all ultimately for another podcast on another day. Yeah. Well, according to uh, a survey of like international readers of Artnet, of course, you know, talk about sample size, talk about how the sample was selected, what you will. But um, according to this survey that Artnet ran of readers, people are not excited about returning to art fairs and that they're planning to not really return either less frequently or not much at all kind of once things get back to normal. So Mm. again, if those are the main ways that people have seen stuff, we'll kind of watch and see how this actually plays out. Then again, a lot of stuff at art fairs sell online or sell via the price sheet that they email out to collectors before something opens anyway. So we'll see if that trend continues or just how it impacts things. Well, we're keeping an eye on things and uh, you guys who are listening probably are as well. And it is definitely a worrying situation um, for visual art. It's a worrying situation for all of the arts and all of the creative industries. so, you know, we're, this is just all unfolding and we're all watching it happen at the same time. And we don't know. I, I'm disturbed by the, when I see a gallery just mentioned on social media that it's having to close and they haven't even sent out a press release, it's a really depressing thing. Mm-hmm. And um, I just don't know how much more of that is going to happen or if it's just barely started and we're about to see a gigantic uh, set of closures. Yeah. And consolidation. And I will say that when the recession hit in Dallas, I won't say who it was, but uh, Road Agent, my gallery, we did talk with another gallery about uh, joining forces and becoming one. It didn't go anywhere, but the talks were very, very serious. And this is just a very tiny junior version of kind of Gavin Brown Mm -hmm. and Barbara Gladstone. It was like, is it worth it? And I don't think we were the only galleries in Dallas or the only galleries in Texas that were having those conversations, but it did, it didn't make sense in the long run, but, but it was, uh, it almost happened. And I, you know, we'll see that too. I think we are going to start seeing galleries join forces here. I think that they're going to have to, if they want to survive. Yeah. With that note, uh, Thanks for listening. Support some galleries if you can. And uh, see some art. See some art. <laughs>